think it may be wise, or certainly may be helpful uh, in a number of ways and for a number of different reasons uh, to say a few more things after everything that we've said on ethics and soul making so far in uh, the Sina and Soul talks and these image of ethics talks and emphasis on those words so far as I said to me they're endless subjects endless inquiries and they really should be endless inquiries an active process so whatever I've said now as I I think I said right at the beginning of the Image and Ethics Talks, just represents a snapshot of a process and evolution, which I hope uh, that others can, uh, when they've digested uh, everything, uh, that's a sort of prerequisite up to now, for soul-making dharma, when they've di- digested soul-making dharma practice, and what's been said so far uh, around ethics. And I hope that there may be some people who can then contribute in a very careful and rigorous um, and intelligent and soulful way with integrity, also moral integrity, can contribute to the further evolution of the whole soul-making Dharma Logos and, and in particular this uh, the branch, uh, the area, the domain around ethics and soul-making dharma. So what I'm going to say now is um, not really in conclusion, it's not really conclusive in a way, uh, they're more, you could say, the more preliminary marks, so could hear this more as an introduction to the whole image and ethics talks, and some, some of what I'm going to say today is in fact uh, just reminders of things that I've already said but because there's been so much said, it's easy to lose a lot of that. And part of the reason uh, for giving this little extra piece now is because some people may have listened to Sina and Soul and the Image of Ethics or other things with Soul Making Dharma and feel quite confused or even concerned at what uh, they are, what they are concluding, other implications or. Um, probabilities that come out of what's been said. So I think it's worthwhile saying that. And also reminding, you know, we, we try to, when talks get put up on Dharma Seed, there's usually a, a sort of caveat, a warning, a sort of user guidelines sort of thing, which says, you know, it's probably really not a good idea to listen to this until you've really digested X, Y, and Z. And in the case of these talks and the Sina and Soul talks, unless one has digested, really digested, I mean, not just intellectually, but in practice as well, the principles of soul-making dharma and the practices um, of soul-making dharma. So not just played with them a little bit, but really had a sense of, oh, this is what the authentic imaginal is like. This This is the sense of it. This is the terrain. And listening to many of these talks before that will, you know, highly likely will only give a partial understanding, probably misunderstandings, etc., and of course give rise to all kinds of concern, etc. So anyway, so we put these notes up, but I know for a fact that 
a good percentage of people just uh, ignore them and go ahead and listen because it looks like an interesting title or whatever. Anyway, so first thing to say is, and this is something I've said before, uh, just to really stress it again, I believe that any ethical system uh, will be incomplete. It will have its strengths and it will have its weaknesses, but it will always have its shortcomings and its inadequacies. And I think that applies to any ethical system that anyone anywhere in the history of humanity so far has offered or come up with or established or guided their based their life on. And that includes whatever we've said so far about sensing the soul and soul-making dharma practice as an approach to ethics, as forming a kind of ethical system. Any ethical system will be incomplete, will have its strengths and weaknesses, its places where it doesn't reach far enough, or it's inadequate. And that includes soul-making dharma uh, approach to ethics. It includes the sensing the soul. So it's really, really important to understand that. Not just about what's been offered, what I've said so far, uh, around ethics, but around any system, any ethical system. And I include absolutely the, the Buddhist ethics, and particularly the Buddha, Buddhist five precepts. It's wonderful, fantastic, and it has its shortcomings and inadequacies. It has its strengths and its weaknesses. And I would even extend that to where people keep more precepts, ten precepts, or the monastic Vinaya, with whatever they have, 236 precepts or whatever it is in the Theravada monastic Vinaya. And still, with all those, with all those precepts, all those laws and rules that they can't break, all those guidelines, still... There's the current, you know, and feels like totally entrenched and unquestionable current of patriarchy there. You see that reflected in the whole battle around validating nuns' ordination, the general tenor of patriarchal uh, hierarchy, etc., that runs through that, and many, many other places, many other manifestations in the monastic life, in the monastic sangha, despite all those precepts. So I include sensing with soul, soul-making dharma, and practice as an approach to ethics, as a, as a system for ethics. It's, gonna, it's not going to be perfect. But neither are the precepts and the approaches of Buddha dharma, I would say. And one of the, one of the issues with Buddha dharma and the five precepts is it, it's, and the idea of just, well, we're just reducing suffering. As a Buddhist, I'm just interested in reducing suffering. That's what I care about. That's the primary thing. That's the orientation of my life. That's how we think about everything. It's actually, uh, with those two things together, the primacy of uh, view, that the primary intention is to reduce suffering, suffering of self and other all beings, the Bodhisattva vow and everything, that view and, and the five precepts. It's very easy then to go into a kind of complacency, for a kind of complacency to take over. Oh, so it's sorted, the ethics is sorted, because I've got the five precepts, and I've got this intention as a Buddhist to reduce suffering. And that's the most important thing. Very easily to kind of just tick, tick the, bo- the box of ethics and sila. And that's done. It's done. I don't need to... All I need to do is just take care that I'm keeping the precepts. And, and the whole philosophy of it is done. And the whole... I don't really need to think about it much anymore. 
And there's a kind of complacency, or their kinds, plural, of complacency that come in there. Very, very dangerous, very, very, I would say, common uh, within the, the, the world of Buddhism. So lots of issues with the five precepts as a, as a kind of approach to ethics, lots of shortcomings. It's not only, the shortcomings are not only in the fact that, that people interpret the precepts very differently, hugely differently. The fifth precept about substances, alcohol, the third precept about sexuality. Heaven knows what people do with the, the fourth precept on speech. It, they, it gets interpreted very, very differently. Vegetarianism, etc. So many uh, different interpretations. And again, what does that uh, show us? What does it imply? There's all these different interpretations. And yet we feel secure in the notion of the five precepts that we're on the right track ethically. And nor is it only because, you know, lots of so-called Buddhists break the precepts all the time, all the time, or, or quite frequently. And nor is it only either because many Buddhists in power, as we've been hearing about and reading about in the, in the news recently, has come to light, been exposed. Many Buddhists in power are actually... Uh, abusing their power and breaking the precepts uh, in doing so. That's not even the only uh, issue with the... That's not only the the, the reason why we need to wake up a little bit and expand things around the whole conversation about ethics, why the five precepts are not enough. Nor is it only um, that, or even in addition, that... Something in the Buddhist precepts and, as I've talked about before, and in the kind of um, archetypes that rule over and through Buddhism, but are not kind of consciously recognized as archetypes and images that are ruling over Buddhism. Equanimity, gentleness... Uh, non-harshness, that that kind of kindness, all these kind of images of what awakening looks like, of what a good Buddhist looks like, that that are often kind of semi-conscious. Semi-conscious is the power of that typical Buddha Rupa image, sitting cross-legged meditatively with his eyes shut, very still, very calm, very not engaged. We've talked about all this before. And what that does together, they've got the five precepts and these kind of not really recognized in their power and their pervasiveness and what they do. Images, archetypes, running through and ruling over Buddha Dharma and its practitioners. And what comes out then sometimes is a sort of passive aggression, for instance, in speech, communication. Because actually, good Buddhists don't get angry and raise their voices. But what comes out is a kind of more uh, plenty of room left there for passive aggressive abuse of power, passive aggressive communication, etc., etc. Or when people are getting a little upset, kind of superciliously looking at them as if, well, that's, you're not really practicing well right now because you're not being really equanimous and calm, etc. But even all those put together, all those reasons, 
people interpret precepts differently, they break precepts, people, Buddhists in power, abuse precepts together with an abuse of their power, there's a kind of passive aggression, that plenty of room, space is, is, is left for in a kind of Buddhist shadow. Not even all those together important, and they are really important issues and questions. But it's just the fact that the precepts are not enough as ethical, uh, I was going to say as ethical guidelines, as really, but what I really mean is uh, as an approach to ethics, as a way of thinking about ethics, as a way of taking care about ethics. They're just not enough, I would say. I certainly know, you know, one of my teachers would very much disagree, but uh, I would say they're just not enough. Thich Nhat Hanh's um, addition to each of the five precepts of adding a kind of positive version, so not just to take what's not given, but to, but to practice generosity, not just to not harm life, but to practice kindness, etc. This is, you know, really, really valuable, really valuable. Really helpful, I think, in terms of opening things up further in a way that they need to be opened up. And for some people, that will be enough. That's enough. Well, that feels like it's enough. It's one approach uh, to opening things up larger. But I still think, as of you know, now I don't know how many hours with the Sina and Soul Talk and the Image of Ethics, but I still think there are larger questions here that need looking at and that need investigation. Precepts are actually not values. So we talk about them as training guidelines. In the actual Pali, is, uh, I undertake the, the training guideline to refrain from whatever it is. That's the translation of the Pali, of the precepts. I undertake the training guideline or the training rule to undertake. I try to do this as a training rule. So it's very different from thou shalt not. But I would say they're still not values. A precept formulated like that is not a value. It's not a commandment either. It's somewhere in between, but it's actually more like a rule or a commandment than it is like a value. Now certainly there are values <clears throat> wrapped up in or implied or suggested, or we we bring a sense of what values may be wrapped up in or implied or suggested in any of those uh, five precepts, but actually it's not very clear. There are wrapped up in them, but if you think think your way through, I'm not going to unpack it for you, think your way through this. Yes, values are implied. What values? What values are implied, and what are the limitations in terms of just uh, connoting or uh, pointing to that value just through the, the formulation of a precept? It's not clear. It's simply not clear. So, I'll come back to this about the precepts. As I say, I don't think they're enough. And one of the indications that they're not enough, as I've you know, started talking about in uh, The Meditator is Revolutionary and Necessity of Fantasy, one of the indicators that they're not enough is just if we ask the question, why is it that Buddhists came so late to the party addressing climate change. Why so late? And I mean that as a real question. There's a real question there. Not just a criticism. Why Why so late? But really, why? What was it, or what is it, in Buddhist 
practice and teaching and thinking and formulations and uh, the way we think about ethics and when we frame ethics and the limitations of the way we think about ethics that meant that probably of all the major religions it was contemporary Buddhism that was the latest in really stepping up. Uh, Thankfully it's really beginning to change now. But it's taken quite a lot of work by you know, a number of people. But this is a real question. Why? Why so late? Why were the Christians already there first? And others? What was going on? As I'm repeating myself now. What's going, what was going on? What was there in the way that we were thinking about ethics and thinking about practice and thinking about liberation and thinking about the world that actually that wasn't picked up. And some of the teachers, when interviewed, for example, by David Loy here, years ago, some of them, like Joseph, were just honest, honest enough to actually really question themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Why haven't I thought about that? And even then, the galvanization, slow, slow. Even when it's pointed out, why are we not thinking about it? Even then, slow. So there's a real question there. And this is part of my, kind of, is it enough just to fall back on the five precepts, just to rest on the kind of presumed safety, the presumed laurels of the five precepts. Someone asked, you know, why don't we have the five precepts as a ceremony when we begin soul-making retreats, you know, and that would help me feel safe, etc. And I think this is something we really have to listen to. Uh, and hopefully in future soul-making retreats we can um, we can do that and create a space at the beginning of retreats there for a ceremony to really invoke and kind of establish the five precepts and give them give them a really central and sacred place. But to me, still, uh, I think that's important, and for some people it will help them feel safe. And that's important. It's important that people feel safe. But to me, there would be a grave, grave error and a grave shortcoming and a grave kind of disservice to both the Dharma and and certainly to soul-making Dharma if we just stopped there. So, okay, that's the ethics piece that we're resting on. It's not enough. So, yes, I think it might be important to establish that as a ceremony, and on future trees, we can we can uh, think about that. Sometimes there's so much to get through that it gets squeezed out. There's also the case, <clears throat> you know, Guy House that we have a kind of legacy because of certain teachers. Over since Guy House was created, there was a real uh, kind of tenor uh, of of frowning on ceremonies and not having any ceremonies for anything at all. So at Guy House, we're a little a little battling that. Uh, history and legacy. So even to have the ceremonies that we do is already sort of pushing the envelope, but I think that might be important because it is important that people feel safe. However, it's not enough. It's really not enough. Um, So I think if we do have a ceremony, it should be also seen that it's a preliminary. And I was thinking recently, you know, just in terms of how, how do people approach uh, the, the area of ethics and its relationship to soul-making dharma, soul-making dharma practice. So often with Buddha dharma, you know, you get taught the ethics first. It's like, okay, let's agree to that, and then you practice. Ideally, that's what you do. 
here's the five precepts, and then you practice. And as I think I shared once, that's how it worked for me. I just hit, heard them. First Dharma talk ever, it made complete sense. Just immediately uh, took them on, changed my life quite drastically, and then got into meditation immediately after that. Now, for a lot of people, that isn't the case. But still, I think it might, and I'm not sure if this is right, so I'm kind of thinking out loud here. It might be that that is, for many people, the the start uh, of soul-making practice. They come to soul-making practice through other Dharma practice, and soul-making Dharma practice, just like other Dharma practice, should be resting on and should be really taking for granted the care for and the adherence to the five precepts. And I think I said that in a podcast interview, maybe a couple of times with a couple of different interviewers. So rests on the five precepts, absolutely. But maybe we should make that a little more clear. So that's a beginning. And then one starts, already has a basis in in the five precepts and a basis in everything else that we usually ask for before people come on soul-making dharma retreats. Mindfulness, insight meditation, samadhi, um, some understanding of emptiness, certainly metta and things like that, and energy body, etc. Begins practicing and developing one's soul making practice, one's imaginal practice. And then one starts to see oh, soul making practice, because values are one of the elements of the imaginal, they're actually implied and involved inextricably in any imaginal practice, in any sense of soul making. Even if it's an so-called extra psychic image with a sensing soul with, with a tree or with a with a landscape or with this whatever it is, animal. Ethics are involved. Again, with the elements, it's almost sometimes you have to notice them. Oh, I didn't even notice that at first. That element. It's like your eyes getting used to the dark. Oh, there's that there as well. Like I don't notice that I'm being loved or whatever it is. So these elements, it's like one really has to get used to the terrain of soul, the landscapes of soul, and the landscapes of the imaginal. And then one starts to realize, not only are values there, but actually, inevitably, soul-making practice will start um, expanding, not contracting, not contracting the range of ethics and the care for ethics, but actually expanding it, making it uh, larger, more, certainly deeper and richer, but also wider, a greater range. As I've talked about this before, we're at the gaps in, in just the five precepts. And start expanding the whole notion of what an awakened being looks like and talks like, what are the dominant archetypes, that are operating and running things and ruling things and sending things only down certain channels and expressions and activism only down certain channels of this is what they look like, this is the tone, this is what we we do, etc. This is what we don't do. starts to wake up to that and expand the range there. More becomes permissible in one's one's ethical stance, in one's ethical response and one's, one's ethical actions. And also the whole nature of the world, that starts to expand. Oh, maybe I'm responsible for more ethically here because the whole nature of the world become, comes alive. So that may be a second stage. First stage is, yeah, just the five precepts as usual alongside your 
regular insight meditation practice and what you know from there, those are two platforms you start practicing. And through the practice itself, I mean through having proper, uh, genuine, uh, genuinely imaginal experiences and, and working with that and grappling with that and listening to teachings and trying to understand, having a range of sensing with soul experiences and all that, then something you will see, something expands. doesn't contract, it expands. Is more demanding ethically. There's a greater range. So that would be the second stage. And then at a third stage, at some point, with enough practice through lots and lots of practice experience and uh, with sensing the soul and imaginal and uh, soul-making dharma and lots and lots and more thorough and deep understanding. So both practice experiences and understanding, we start to, I think, inevitably, um, we will reach a point where we trust enough in soul-making dharma and practice that we trust that sensing the soul can actually become a basis for ethics. Through, as I've described in these image, image of ethics talk, through a sensing the soul with regard to values, to virtues, to ethical choices and situations. So there's three stages there. We're not starting with the third stage of asking someone to kind of buy into some whole ethical system that might sound very odd or strange or might raise some concerns. So you're not asking them to buy into that before these other stages. So I don't know, as I say, I'm thinking out loud here. I'm wondering about order, what the order is. People often ask me just in what order should I listen to talks in? In what order should I... Um, so I'm thinking out loud, I don't know what the order is for sensing the soul practice, for soul-making dharma. But that might be one way of thinking about it, right? just these three stages. Very different from putting the ethics uh, in the soul-making dharma, sort of understanding of ethics, putting that first. That would be kind of uh, ridiculous, because people wouldn't really know have an ability to do that or know what we're talking about and would easily be misunderstood, misinterpreted, all kinds of things. So there are lots of questions about this. What's the order? What's a prerequisite for soul-making dharma practice? And so one question we still have, I don't think it's quite resolved, is exactly how much real understanding of emptiness should a person have before they really get into soul-making dharma? And I've said briefly a sort of secondary comments, you know, I'm not sure yet, I'm not sure yet, but in several conversations there are people who think, I think, you know, one really needs to have a quite a deep understanding of emptiness, or quite a sure understanding of emptiness, and I mean emptiness as I teach it, that really thorough emptiness, not just a, not just a, a little bit about, you know, the sort of, whatever it is, emptiness is impermanence, or aggregates in time. You know, that's also a question, it's a parallel question. How much emptiness practice and understanding do people have? Should we stipulate or even um, uh, demand that people have before they do soul-making practice, maybe before they're even allowed to hear soul-making teachings? I don't know. These are all open, open questions. I'm really not sure yet. So some may have heard in the in the totality of the ethics talk so far, the seat and soul and the image of ethics, you know. 
well, I hear this thing about hierarchies of values, for instance, and I don't like the idea of lower versus higher. So a few things about that. You know, remember, and perhaps I didn't make this clear, sufficiently clear at all on the Sealer and Soul talks, but Hartman was really addressing a different question than, say, Kant. And, and we are prone these days, as I'm trying to make very clear on the image of ethics talks, we are prone these days to approach ethics with immediately the question of what's right, what's wrong. This is what I want from an ethical system. I want a stipulation about what's right and what's wrong. And Hartman actually said, no, the fundamental question is what is of value? And that's a bigger question. What is really good with a capital G? What is the good, as the the ancients used to talk about? What is a life that's really worthwhile? What is the beautiful life? And that's a bigger question than what's right and what's wrong. Before you can answer the question, what's right and wrong, what should I do, what ought I to do in this or that situation, you have to actually answer or look at the larger question of what is of value. It's not so much replacing one question with another, but uh, providing uh, a ground, a wider and deeper ground for the question, what ought I to do, with the wider and deeper question, what is of value. And then, this whole question, or this whole uh, you know, exploration of a hierarchy of values is necessarily called in when we ask that bigger question. And the question of what's right and what's wrong sits within that bigger question, and I hope that's something that the Image of Ethics talks makes clear. And the fact is, we do have hierarchies of values. You have them anyway. So again, it's just a bit like the soul-making dharma and practice itself. It's just making clear what goes on for us as human beings anyway soul-making down or in relation to eros, when we really love something, and in relation to ethics, when we uh, make ethical choices, and when we're arguing with someone about right and wrong, and it's not just stuck, the argument. We actually have hierarchies anyway, so in a way we're exposing something, and actually we need to talk about this, because it's already there, and we need to talk about it, because actually we need to expand the conversation, the range of conversation. What are we trying to actually ask and address and inquire into. What's the fundamental question here? So a person says, I don't like this idea of a hierarchy of values. Okay, well, we'll think back, for example, to Augustine's hierarchy and the example he used, or the example we used, of an example he used. He says, justice compared to gold. He said, these are both wonderful things. They both have value. They're both part of... God's creation, and as such, both of them should be loved. But for Augustine, it's clear there's a hierarchy here. Justice is a, has a higher value than gold, and we should orient uh, uh, that way. We should appreciate the hierarchy of values and love justice and gold according to their place in that hierarchy. In other words, we should love justice more than gold. Gold, you know, personal profit. And then one can say, oh, I could use that personal profit for justice. Okay, but the point he's making here is um, for personally used material gain. 
So if you think you don't like hierarchies of values, then just use Augustine's example. You think Augustine's example. Do you really disapprove of the idea that it's better to love justice over your personal profit that you would use for your personal use? Most of us, even if we find it hard to live up to sometimes, would say justice is the higher value. There's a hierarchy there. And we would agree with Augustine, maybe, that we should love according to that hierarchy. We should love justice over our love and our desire for gold. So this is the kind of thing that's being pointed to. And just to, to, to ask yourself, if you have this objection to a sense of hierarchy, do you object to that hierarchy? Or to take another example from... Nikolai Hartmann. So he has two values, the value of altruism and the value of egoism, of selfish interest, selfishness of interest. So they're in hierarchical relationship to each other. Altruism is the higher value. It's higher than selfishness of interest. Selfishness of interest is still a value. Egoism is still a value. We need to take care of ourselves and our own needs. But how do we know there's a hierarchy there? Or how can you sense if you already feel there's a hierarchy there? That's the more important question. How does your heart respond to stories of altruism? Or when you witness great altruism? Are are you not moved and impressed? And how does your heart respond when you just see someone just taking care of their own needs? It may not even be at the obvious expense of anyone else. But the way these things touch our heart and impress on our heart, the way our heart responds when we witness altruism compared to when we witness egoism is already implying that we sense a hierarchy there. Now, of course, you may not. But I think a lot of people... Maybe it's universal, maybe it's just a cultural thing that's come post-Christianity. But my point is more for you to introspect a little bit here. And just see, is your heart not more impressed upon, more moved? Are you not more impressed when you witness altruism compared to when you witness just some example of someone just taking care of their own interests? Egoism. And Hartman adds to that, yes, there's a hierarchy here, but if it's completely, utterly lopsided, and there's way too much altruism and almost no selfish interest, it's so imbalanced between those two hierarchies that it borders on stupidity and dysfunction. So yes, there's a hierarchy, but still there's a qualification that one is not at the complete expense of the other. Altruism is not at the complete expense of selfish, uh, selfishness, of interest, of taking care of oneself, of egoism. So there's a hierarchy, but it's got other considerations that are woven into the sense of that hierarchy. If we want a kind of wisdom with regard to the hierarchy. And there may have been things, for instance, in the Sealer and Soul talks, or even in the Image of Ethics talks, where 
you know, talk about a certain value and it just doesn't resonate for some people. Of course not. Uh, so, again, maybe I just didn't make this clear enough. But if, if certain values don't resonate, you know, they're just rarer values and they're not for everyone. So, for example, <clears throat> what Hartman calls the value of nobility, noble-mindedness, in his sense of the word, <clears throat> very particular usage he has of that word in an ethical context, in the context of values and virtues that we talked about in Sira and Sol. And it really means for him the opening up of the kind of vision or sensibility or realizational capacities of the culture at any time, opening up the telescope lens wider, opening up the focus of the telescope lens wider as it looks on the firmament of values. Remember, every culture, every person has a limited scope, and the noble-minded nobility with regard to values actually stretches that scope. Such a person begins to discern new values that the culture hasn't at that time hasn't sensed yet. Their antennae are more receptive. They're ahead of their time, in a way. In much the same way that Christianity itself now has become such entrenched values, even if one isn't a Christian or isn't religious or objects to what our inheritance from Christianity and all the wrong that's been done and this and that, we've still absorbed so much from Christian morality at its time, though, it was a novel value, novel and noble, in the sense that Jesus and, and the first apostles and disciples were really feeling into the ether, into the firmament of values, and picking up on a new set of values, or stretching of the values, love over law. The value of love over the value of biblical law of Moses' law. So at that point, those who were sensible to that and preached that were embodying, manifesting the value, the virtue of nobility in Hartman's sense. Now, of course, it's just totally old hat, as I said. But there's a value in nobility. And some people have that calling, and some people just don't relate to that at all. And again, if you talk about higher values, or if I use that language, it does not mean a higher value is at the complete expense of, of a lower value. So, for example, we're talking about love of the remote. And love of the remote really means love of those in the future, but those most excellent in the future. Those most likely able to offer something really beautiful to the world and really valuable to the world in the future. And caring for those people who one doesn't even know or meet, one might not even be sure if they get the message, or etc., etc. And then comparing that or contrasting that with love of one's neighbour, which is those around one, the everyday sort of interactions. And some people, like Nietzsche, almost discovering the love of the remote and prioritising that to the complete expense of love, the love of his neighbour... You know, I don't know, he went, eventually went mad, but um, it was probably a biological thing, an illness. 
a physical illness that affected his brain. But anyway, it was a mistake. You know, and sometimes, in fact, as Hartman points out, sometimes people discovering new things get a little extreme at times. And they're, you know, out in territory where no one else goes exploring ideas or creative projects, and it's all a little bonkers. And uh, I think I know that territory a little bit from peers in my life. Creative projects that uh, one feels very alone with and, yeah, gets a little mad. Anyway, the point is, if we make a hierarchy between those values, love of the row is not, absolutely not, at the complete expense of love of the neighbour. And to, to prioritise it at the, uh, completely, oh, that would be a mistake. And secondly, it's not for everyone. That one, we could talk about other values. They're just not for everyone, it's fine. We're just talking about things that, you know, for some people it might make more sense of why, why do I feel like I can't quite fit into the sort of taken-for-granted ethical system? I seem to be caring about something else, I can't quite articulate it. So putting out a teaching like that may be helpful for those people who, who will almost certainly be in a minority but who have been grappling with trying to make sense of their own life and their choices, and they seem to be sort of not completely, you know, doing what the sort of standard ethics would suggest that they do. It's like, oh, okay, we need to expand our thinking here. And it's not for everyone. And so if it's not for you, just leave it. And we could give lots of different examples here. But more, even more importantly, I think, uh, now from the image of ethics talks, it should be clear, again, that it's not in the thing itself. That eventually we can just use the soul-making sense as your guide. So it's not intrinsically, so to speak, for example, if we use, take that as a love of the own is higher than uh, love of one's neighbour or whatever. It's not intrinsically in the thing itself, right? We've emphasized this several times when we talked about the ontology of values in, in the image of ethics talk. It's more that if I personally or you personally have developed your soul-making practice, you start to get a sense of, is this or that value soul-making to you? And some people will hear about certain values, it just doesn't resonate, and it never will resonate. And for other people, you start to really get a sense of the soul is really called in a certain direction. And again, even if it is, it doesn't mean to follow that call or to prioritise that call at the complete expense and at the total disregard of a, another value that might seem lower in your personal soul-making sense of the hierarchy there. So this is really important, but eventually one can use one's own personal soul-making sense, and that's different than decreeing that this is um, for everyone a so-called you know, higher value, and this is, that is for everyone a so-called lower value. Again, I'd be repeating, but if that sounds alarming, and you think, oh, so it can just be anything you like, any whim, you can decide what's higher or lower value, then... If one thinks that, at this point, you haven't understood yet the, the discipline and the demands of soul-making practice and understanding, the discipline and demands of a disciplined eros, 
disciplined sensing with soul. And again, to repeat, we're putting out, exploring, unfolding, uh, supporting ethics with a different ontology and a different epistemology, different than Hartman's, and different than usual ontologies and epistemologies that we're used to. Certainly different than the usual one of modernity, or of post-modernity, or of pre-modernity. We've gone into this before. But as I said, even that might sound alarming to people. Let it go for now, if it sounds alarming. It's really important to trust your concerns and leave what sounds alarming or what you don't like, or better, discuss it with others. Really discuss it. And it might be that you leave that part alone, just leave it, just go back to what you feel comfortable with ethically, what makes sense, actually what really makes sense to you, more than feel comfortable. It's like you need to be, we need to be stretched and challenged with ethics and not necessarily comfortable. But I mean, what feels that you can trust ethically Leave it. And if you're still really attracted to soul-making practice, get into the soul-making practice. And it's probable that that evolution that I was talking about before, those three stages, you'll start to realize, oh, now the soul-making business is opening up my whole ethical outlook and questioning and sensibility and the ethical demands on me and the range of that and the range of expressions and all that. And then eventually it will mature even more And you will feel that you can trust your soul-making sense with regard to ethics. And you will feel a hierarchy of values, but it's your personal hierarchy of values. And you will feel that you can trust that. There's no danger, again, and say, oh, everyone can decide for themselves. So this mass murderer could just decide that this is how... We've been through all that. But if it's alarming for you now, it just means you're, you're not ready for it. Just leave it. Put it down. Come back to what you feel you can trust both ethically and in terms of practice. And if you feel drawn to soul-making dharma, just get into it. And if you really develop it, if you put the time in and, and you love it and it develops, at some point there will be these stages of evolution that will open up and transform your relationship with ethics and ethical questions and ethical issues. So, really important, I think, to establish the imaginal practice first, practicing with the imaginal, the soul-making, soul sensing with soul practice first. If you want to, you know, if you want to, um, if you feel called that way. And so establish that first, before you can really even properly, I think, for most people, probably even assess these whole teachings about ethics now. And I really mean imaginal practice. I don't just mean the use of the imagination in meditation. And I mean more than just, you know, some images coming or working with some images in meditation or in therapy or somewhere else where that image has felt very healing, perhaps psychologically or whatever. I really mean imaginal in the sense of we tried to outline that the aspects, the elements of the authentically, the genuinely imaginal with all the elements and with all the ways it spreads and all that business. So really establish that first and really really get, as I said, uh, familiar with 
that whole uh, landscape of the imaginal. And then you see, oh yeah, there's values implicit there. And some of them, just the fact of what values are implicit, are actually expanding and making demands and stretching uh, your ethical range and sensibility and inquiry. And, And there's the fullness of intention there. It's not that we're in the grip of some selfish intention. With the fullness of intention, there's an ethical safeguard that goes with it. And there's the imaginal middle way. We're not reifying, we're not concretizing, mistaking images for reality and acting on them sort of indiscriminately. And there's a distinction between eros and craving. Craving always wants to possess its objects, always needs to have more, and that more spreads horizontally, as we've been talking about. I want to possess more and more objects, more and more experiences, at the risk of disregarding ethical concerns. I don't care. Uh, And it's not even, I think I don't care, I just don't see. This is what craving does when it's not allowed to become eros. Eros, as we talked about, opens up the imaginal, the vertical dimensions. It can get the more it wants in this endless opening up of, of, of one image. It doesn't need to have more objects, possess them concretely, getting what it wants through that opening up. And the duty, again, it's not literal, but it's refracted, refracted into life. So even the dark images, you know, if there's images of killing and sacrifice and drinking blood and rampage and, you know, whatever it is, they're refracted into act or speech. They're metaphor. The image can stay what it is, but it refracts into something that ostensibly doesn't even look like it. So I can see, you know, all those soldier-warrior images that I used to have, how they have been refracted into my life through, through my teachings. My teachings have been, you know, one could say from a certain point, warrior-like, etc. I'm certainly not going to join the army and get a sword, hurt anyone physically or anything like that. So, you know, <clears throat> touching on something I said before, there's been a question with the whole soul-making teachings. Really, almost from the beginning, not quite, but almost from the beginning. I somehow felt a duty when I started teaching soul-making and imaginal stuff. I somehow felt a duty in putting it out there in the Dharma context and shaking things up and asking questions and expanding things. And I felt a duty in doing that a soul duty in doing that, but quite quickly there came a question, and Catherine and I returned to this question quite regularly. Should these teachings be freely available? I'm talking about the whole soul-making Dharma teaching, the imaginal teaching. They're just there on Dharma seed, free, literally freely available. Anyone can listen. It's just open on the internet. You don't need to do anything. You just need to click on a button. And you can hear all this stuff. And is that appropriate? And there's a number of reasons to ask, is it appropriate? Should they be freely available? Or should there be a whole series of preliminary stages that we, as I said, d- demand, require people to go through? 
not, not even just suggest they go through, as we sometimes do, but demand that they go through before they can even listen to any teachings. Qualifications that they need to have to have access to the teachings and practices, like it used to be in, uh, for example, Tibetan tantric teachings, and is much less so these days, but still a little bit so. Before you can hear certain teachings, before you have access to the teacher, before you know, are given any practice instructions whatsoever. So that's still an ongoing question. I'm not sure. I don't know. But I'm just sharing that this is some. This is a question that we has been around for a while now, and that we take very seriously as a real ongoing question. <clears throat> and you know, historically, the same thing with regard to emptiness teachings. I think I shared this. You know, you look at the old Mahayana text and it says, "Don't teach emptiness to someone who's not excited about it, to someone who's not ready for it, etc." We do that these days. Well, certainly I do that. But I can see the wisdom in that teaching. What a difficulty it is when the person is not ready and when they're not excited and when they jump to all kinds of conclusions just from hearing the emptiness teaching. I'm not even talking about ethics teaching. I'm talking about emptiness teachings. And one of the things they jump to is what I shared a couple of times in this series of talks. What does it imply about ethics? Or they hear about where emptiness might go, and they're, oh, that means I'm not going to care about anything, it means nothing matters, it means I'm not going to care about ethics because ethics must be empty, or blah, blah, blah. And as we said, no, 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 no. Don't start at the end, start at the beginning. And the beginning is just these ideas about there's the flexibility of ways of looking, and there's this notion of fabrication. Both of them can start as really simple ideas. Papancha is more fabricated than a normal consciousness. Ways of looking, it's like, okay, just compare mindfulness to non-mindfulness. Just compare a way of looking that's come out of just some meta-practice compared to a regular way of looking. When you're, when you're feeling grumpy or angry or whatever. Just really, really simple. And take it from there. Take these two concepts, take these strands of inquiry, ways of looking, fabrication, to take them for right and eventually see what they imply about ethics. And in that way of doing it, as we've said several times now, the ethics is woven in from the beginning. You can't not see it. It's unavoidable. It's inextricably woven in. And in that way of approaching the emptiness, there's never a division, a separation between so-called relative and absolute. Relative truth and absolute truth. So Mahayana and Vajrayana teaching, they talk about the union of the two truths. Conventional relative truth and ultimate truth. And... In this way of practicing emptiness, it's entirely sort of, it's just obvious, as I said, inescapable, central at every level of the exploration of emptiness using that approach, the ways of looking fabrication approach. So there's never any danger from the insights that come from that approach. There's never any danger of sort of choosing the absolute over the relative so to speak, or trying to justify some behavior or action or speech or whatever through an appeal to 
the deeper truth of the absolute, of the emptiness, or whatever it is, or the oneness. Or if we approach in other ways emptiness, or, or have different understandings of emptiness, it means everything exists in the mind, or it means all is one, then there's danger that can creep in there. If everything is one, it's no problem, it doesn't matter. What's doesn't as we've talked about this before, it doesn't matter if even this person dies or this person's miserable or that whole ecosystem disappears, it's all one. You can't take away anything from the one. The one is infinitely one, no matter what disappears. Or it's all in the mind, it means it's not a real thing in that sense. So there are issues around emptiness, but I think this way of teaching it has a really good safeguard because the ethics is integrated from the beginning. But again, just to say, these are questions, and they are questions with some history if we look at uh, the relationship of Buddhism and Buddhist teachers to teaching emptiness. And you see that, as I said, even in, I think if I remember, even in Prajnaparamita texts, in like core Buddhist texts, but certainly in lots of other texts. I'm pretty sure, Prajnaparamita texts. So it's there with emptiness. Now we have the same kinds of question in terms of who to teach soul-making dharma to. Should, they, should this material just be freely available? With all the instructions and the examples and the dharma sort of ideas and philosophy and now this business about should it just be freely available? I don't know. I mean, at the moment it is, but as I said, it's an ongoing question. And so it's something we take very seriously. So, there, there's lots in process now, and there's lots that we're um, debating and thinking about as well. So, so I just wanted to share this, as I said at the beginning, not conclusive remarks in conclusion, but more open, open-ended remarks, questions, and also, in a way, kind of preliminary remarks. But I hope that that's in some way helpful.